Hi, this is Dr. Katherine Kelly, the author of Soul Health, Aligning with Spirit for Radiant Living, and you are listening to My Quest for the Best. Have you ever wondered how to tap into more sources of insight in your body? Sure, we have our thoughts that come from our mind, and lots of them, right? Yet there are also messages we get from our heart to guide us, as well as from our gut to protect us as well. My next guest, Dr. Katherine Kelly, talks about how to embrace the wisdom of our soul to continue to grow fully. I love when Katherine talks about how fear limits what we think we can do, because that's so applicable to life at work as well as in all of our relationships. If you're ready to learn about overcoming those limits in your own life, then listen in. I'm so glad you're here. Hi, this is Bill Ringel, host of My Quest for the Best, where ambitious small business leaders discover strategies and tactics to unlock their growth potential. Joining me today is Dr. Katherine Kelly. Katherine Kelly's career as a holistic health psychologist has taken her from the convent to Krispy Kreme. Her book, Soul Health, Aligning with Spirit for Radiant Living, has been published and featured on over 130 national and international radio shows and podcasts. Catherine was Director of Behavioral Science in Family Medicine at Wake Forest University, trained with the Mind-Body Medical Institute of of Harvard University, and has owned her own Holistic Health and Wellness Center. With over 23 years of direct client experience, she just doesn't believe, she doesn't just believe in helping patients to heal, instead her mission is to help them evolve. She lives in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Welcome, Catherine. Hi there. I'm, I'm so glad to be here on your show today. It's a pleasure to have you. Tell me, when you were growing up, who was the person or who inspired or influenced you? You know, I'm going to go off the beaten track, and, and I would say it wasn't really a person. It was the idea of a person. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was, it was during the time of Star Wars. You know, I grew up with two older brothers and a father who just really loved the Star Wars movies. And I always looked for the character, really, in, in work environments and role models that had the most integrity and the most wisdom. And so I looked really toward Yoda, of all people, to be sort of my icon of a mentor, of who to follow. And, you know, throughout my life, those are the mentors that I've chosen are the ones that kind of had that sort of real wisdom to them. And so for me as a child, believe it or not, it was actually Yoda that, that influenced me a lot because it was the icon. It was the characterization of all of the most wonderful, positive, and deep concepts all rolled into one little green guy that really helped to influence me in lots of ways. So growing up, you could say you got your MBY, you're mentored by Yoda. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) There you go, yeah. And and most of my friends, you know, anytime they see a little Yoda of anything, they, they think of me or send me pictures or whatever, because it is that whole idea of you know, looking for kind of the best of everybody in, in uh, Star Wars. And Star Wars really, I, I think the, the characterization of Yoda pro- pretty much was the best of every one of those other characters. Uh, really interesting because it's not a glamorous character. It's not a character that's the most popular, but the most integrity and the most wisdom. Yes. And it, that's lovely. Can you think of an example where that influence guided you to make a different decision? You know, I think if you think about the whole icon of Yoda, he always took the high road. He didn't. He wasn't quick to jump into anything. He was always very observant and was not reactive. And so I can think of probably thousands of ideas of when it was that I had to step back instead of reacting 
and put myself into a place of response, and that always seems to work better. So, you know, that's something that I teach a lot of the leaders that I work with and, and also with my clients, my individual clients as a psychologist, is, is to really just come from that Yoda part of them. I don't, I don't usually talk about the Yoda part of them. I usually talk about the wise part of them or the soul part of them that is that deepest wisdom that they could have and take themselves to that next step and take that high road. You know, whether it was having to deal with um, a very challenging faculty member during my graduate program and I had to kind of take the high road, whether it was dealing with coworkers or anything else, it was always kind of stepping back and saying, you know, I really could react to this, but I'd much rather respond to it. And how do you define the difference between responding and reacting? Reactive is a very emotional kind of approach to life. And, and yet, you know, as a psychologist, I look at emotions as being very instructive and informative for us. And so if we if we react out of an emotion without really pausing to think through what it is that, you know, we we're supposed to be learning from that reaction or that moment, then we're mm-hmm. going to miss out on a whole lot of our evolution. And so to me, So it's kind of just the energy without the information part of the message. Yeah, and if you pause long enough to go, "Oof, gosh, how do I want to respond to this or what am I supposed to learn from this?" trigger, whatever the emotional trigger is, you get so much more out of the situation. And then, you know, as I call it, you, you evolve even more because then you deepen your understanding, you deepen your, it kind of seasons you in a way that it deepens your kind of a consciousness and your awareness of life. And then responding, how would you contrast that with reacting? Again, the response is, is a beautiful thing because then it, it, that pause, that, that you know, very brief pause gives you enough time to kind of digest what it is that you're supposed to be learning from the situation and then take that high road. Because if, I think one of our biggest uh, challenges, and boy, we see this all over the media right now, you know, is people respond or re- reacting before they're really responding. So that response is a much more conscious and a much more... Um, much more conscious, much more intelligent, and oftentimes much more wise kind of uh, response rather than, you know, our quick-to-react kind of situations. Now, when you were pursuing your grad degree and started working with people, I could see very clearly how this influence and this orientation would have guided you to make some of those decisions. Was there anything else that helped you figure out what you wanted to pursue as a career? Well, I think it was health in general. And when I say health in general, I don't think of just physical health. And I'll, I'll give you a very brief backstory about this. When I was nine years old, my father had an accident that pretty much medically disabled him. And being in a conventional, traditional family, um, that shifted everything because once he was medically disabled and my mom really had to figure out how does she make ends meet, everything kind of shifted into her kind of ballpark and she had to go back to work and um, you know she she was a stay-at-home you know mom and wife so she had to kind of make ends meet in her own way what happened for me as that nine-year-old child and being an observant you know child I started realizing that all of the aspects of, of what I call health were really shifted and really kind of shaken so I created what I call the soul health model, which to me covers all of the 10 branches of the human condition that all of us have to deal with. All of us have to really learn how to balance and manage and master in order for us to feel good and feel aligned and feel radiant. So health in general, and I mean overall health, holistic health, was the other thing that really started to influence me. And again, I think that was from my own experiences as that young child watching my family, you know, be kind of shifted around and the roles and, you know, really every aspect of our health was shifted around. 
So between looking for integrity and looking for how it is that you align your life and also looking at, you know, these very, quote, structural areas of life, you know, physical, spiritual, psychological, etc., once I came to that conclusion that we have to actively and consciously work <laughs> to balance our lives um, for our own growth and evolution, it all came together for me. So you started to write about soul health. Um, as you were writing the book, what's one idea or finding that surprised you? Well, I think the number one thing is that most of us are taught not to listen to our souls. We're taught to listen to our heads. You know, our, our brains, our, our cognitions are, are what are valued in our country and in our culture. And yet, how many times have we had a thought or had a vision or had a inspiration that's led us down a path that took us completely off of our mark? Once I started realizing that, gosh, we are kind of taught backwards here, instead of really getting that gut sense or that sense of truth, that sense of integrity that we talked about earlier with Yoda, is that that seems to line people up much better. Because you can ask, what do you think about something? And they can list off a ton of things, but then I can ask, what does your gut tell you? And they will get straight to the point. And they will they will lead their lives much better and much more through a straight line rather than all the detours that I think a lot of us take if we use that gut reaction or, the, again, I call it soul-based living. Is that how most people can identify and connect with that source of wisdom is by thinking about it as their gut, where you refer to it as their soul? I personally think there is no fail with that um, because once you teach someone to – use that gut reaction, again, get out of their, their head sometimes. Yes, I think every single person on this planet could relate to that because it's nothing, you know, I, I know that when I say the word soul, some people, you know, think, oh, gosh, that's religion, that's, you know, something woo-woo. It, it has nothing to do with that. It's about getting to that, that deep part of who you are, the essence of who you are, and listening and aligning your life in your truth so that you can have that most radiant life or, you know, in your terms, your quest for the best. You can learn to quest for what is your best if you listen to your gut the most. I think that's important for everyone who's listening, who leads a business, is interacting with employees and managers on a day-to-day basis, to remember to listen to your gut or to listen to your soul and to find a way to seek that as a source of input as well as what your mind tells you and as well as what your heart tells you, but seek it as another source of wisdom to help you, guide you, make decisions, and be more effective in both your life and your work. When people are doing this, they they have to develop different skills to listen to their gut or their soul. What do you encourage people to do in order to increase their effectiveness at this? You know, the first thing is literally to stop themselves and, and ask, you know, what does my gut tell me with this? Now, a lot of people will go straight to their thoughts anyway, and and yet what I tell people is, and this is, and it's a beautiful way, it's a little trick, there's something that is called neurolinguistic processing, and it has all to do with where you put your eyes or where your eyes go when you're trying to form a thought. Now, if you bring your eyes down, now this is a very simple tool that everybody can use. If you bring your eyes down as if you're looking at the floor and then close your eyes, it's almost like you tune into that gut reaction even more. And it's because your brain recognizes that you're trying to go deeper rather than trying to access a thought. So I, I teach people, close your eyes, bring your eyes down, and then ask your gut, what does your gut tell me or tell you? And then it, it basically accesses their truth much more rather than sifting through all the societal stuff that we hear, you know, sifting through all of the thoughts of what our family or friends might think or our coworkers might think, 
it's really beautiful because when you when you ask those questions by keeping your eyes down, you you really get to the heart and soul of what a person is about and what they really need for their life. So you work with people who are business leaders and community leaders and government leaders. Um, Catherine, tell me what is it that what's an example of when someone is seeking to have a stronger connection with their soul health that they come to you and describe as some of the conditions that might be not working perfectly in their life or not working as they would like it to be? It could be a little bit of anything. You know, when I work with leaders, one of the the things that they they struggle with the most is life balance. And if your own life is not balanced, you're really not going to be the best leader possible. So when I have worked with different companies, um, you know, you mentioned Krispy Kreme. I was brought in to work at the women's uh, leadership and this was several years ago, and one of the things I did was I put on a morning workshop. It was about a two-and-a-half, three-hour workshop just for the women leaders of the Krispy Kreme business corporation, which happens to be based right here in North Carolina in Winston-Salem. And I basically taught them how to realign their lives through that gut reaction, through their truth, but then also using my soul health model, which has those ten branches of the human condition that everybody you know, really eventually needs to work on. But I, I streamlined it for them to, to the point where by the end of that two and a half, three hours, they could basically really know themselves better and know what it was from a leader's perspective that they needed to do to align their own lives so that they could align their um, their supervisees or their, their employees that they worked with. So it, it's it's a trickle-down effect. It's really sort of a, you know, like a pyramid effect that once you help someone from the top balance their lives and really understand that gut reaction, understand that soul-based kind of leadership, um, then it helps trickle down throughout the employee base as well. So let's get back to what someone might actually be experiencing. When you work with women leaders, for instance, do they come to you complaining that their lives are, are out of whack, that they have no time for themselves, that they always are putting work before their family and they feel terrible about it, that they haven't been out to dinner with their girlfriends. What is it that they seek that they feel disconnected with that becomes an urgent situation that makes them more responsive and open to pursuing this, this, this approach? Perfect. And I can give you a very concrete example. Women of our generation sleep an, an average of two to two and a half hours less than our mothers did because we are in much more of a a work mode, housewife mode, mother mode. So we are sort of in this interesting place in our development of species. Our previous generation, how long did women sleep? Eight to nine hours. Now the average is about five and a half to six hours. And there's all this research that has come out in the last five years, ten years, of how detrimental to our physical body lack of sleep is. So it breaks down every organ in our body. When we don't get enough sleep, we we end up having more heart problems, um, cholesterol problems, you know, stress. I mean, there's all these different studies that have come out. So it's a very concrete example because, you know, the women that come in, the women leaders that come in are tired, and they want some way to fix that. So then basically what I do is I help them look at the soul health model and look at what they can reconfigure not only to get themselves into the bed sooner so they can get good rest, but that basically in the process they de-stress their lives as well. So it's like a multi-purpose healing and sort of treatment right in the moment. It's, it's a kind of a laser 
beam approach to helping them understand, oh, gosh, I really don't have to be doing X, Y, Z, you know, at 9 o'clock at night. I actually need to be investing in myself to go to bed, and then the next morning they're feeling better, they can lead better, they get more done, their time management is better, their productivity is better. So it's really kind of a laser beam approach per person, but also, you know, as a group. Um, it's, it's not unusual at all for the whole group of women. If I'm doing a talk for 60 women, that, you know, 54 of them raise their hands that they don't get enough sleep. Every woman leader listening to this realize that you can't fake it, that when oh, you no. don't get enough sleep, people notice that you're not at your best. You're not going to make the best decisions. Your interactions with people aren't going to be at the same quality, and it's apparent, even though you think you're faking it. Right, Catherine? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And not only that, productivity is not good, your quality is not good, all of that is not good. So you're absolutely right. It, it's very apparent. The only problem is most other women get it too because they're, they're going through the same thing, but that doesn't mean it's a good thing. So what's, in your experience, what's been something that helps women not just get one good night's sleep but makes it a priority so that leaders and, and people who are listening to this do prioritize their own health so that they could be at their best, so that they can enjoy life more, they could be more effective at business, and also give more to others. What is it that helps with that restructuring so that it becomes more of a, a habit than something that's just done once in a while? You know, and, and one of those things is, is sort of a, I guess, a context of how a person lives because women have a tendency to, to believe that they are the only ones who can take care of someone. And so mm. it's a repartner, I call it repartnering. So it's learning how to repartner. You know, when a person gets married, they have certain roles they take on from either the gender roles or the societal roles. But we live in a new world. We live in a, a very different world than we did even 10, 15, 20 years ago. So one of the first things I do is I, I teach them how to repartner. And what that might mean is really having some really good negotiation skills with their 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 husband or um, other family members that are kind of creating this village around raising children or however, you know, the context might be within that particular uh, relationship. But I think that the main thing is repartnering with themselves as well because women are really rotten at taking care of themselves. Uh, we're great at taking care of everybody else, and I think, you know, when I do workshops, I often have people raise their hands and say, okay, how many of you feel like you're much better at taking care of someone else than yourself? And like 100% of them raise their hands. So it's reteaching them that they have to repartner with themselves. And again, one of the, the words that I use as far as working with my soul health model is that I tell them, I talk to them about becoming a better steward to their own soul. So in other words, really being a steward and investing in themselves so that they can invest in other people, whether it's family, whether it's, you know, supervising their employees, whether it's whomever it might be even in the workplace as well. So it's, a, it's repartnering and stewardship, I think, that, that makes a huge difference from a kind of contextual standpoint. What does it mean to you to help people evolve? You know, one of the things that I say even on my website, and I actually get a lot of people that call me to make appointments after having said this, but I talk to people about, it's not enough for me to help someone heal. To me, it's much more important to help them evolve. So healing involves going backwards in time, really working through the situation or trauma or whatever it is that caused them to come into my office. But I don't want to just get them back to where they were. I want them to consciously become aware of how they got where they were and also create a, a major toolbox so that they can evolve beyond that space. 
In other words, really understanding why that that particular situation might have happened um, in their own lifetime, how that was supposed to affect them, and then also taking it even further to make them even better. So that whole quest for the best is is right there laid into the whole idea of evolution because if we just want to get back to where we were, well, then we're hitting the ceiling. But we always, really, we're here to infinitely evolve as far as I'm concerned. So it's taking them beyond that point of healing and getting them even further, and and that could be way, way, way further than they ever thought they could get. So, Catherine, what's an example of when you've experienced this in your own life? Because it's easy to have the concept and agree with it, but I think that there's always a, a personal commitment and a personal maybe revelation or a shift in a relationship that comes about when we really embrace and get that breakthrough so that we're, you know, for your own evolution, it may have been characterized by renegotiating something important. Can you think of an example when you looked and said, wow, that's the real stuff? Oh, there, there's been many times in my own life, and I'm, I'm one of those constant learners. I want to keep learning and evolving myself so I can help other people. So one great example of that, I think, is what I call my professional identity crisis that I had, um, and that was probably about 14, well, about 15 years ago. So you mentioned that I was a director of behavioral science at Wake Forest University School of Medicine. I, From graduate school on, I really thought that I was supposed to teach in a medical setting. I, I knew that I wanted to do psychology every, ever since the time I was a junior in high school when I took an honor psych class. And then the more I learned and grew, I thought, oh, gosh, you know, I feel like I'm supposed to teach in university because I love teaching. I love helping people in a speaking role. Um, and so I, you know, I landed this job as director of behavioral science. Uh, first year I loved it, but then after that I started realizing that it was limiting to me in some ways that I wasn't expecting because for me, and I, I remember telling someone this after I had turned in my resignation, is that I can't work at somewhere unless I can be at my best. Hmm. What I meant by that was that it felt so restrictive in some ways that I couldn't keep growing and evolving myself because I had to kind of fit into kind of the the constraints of what that particular job held for me. And, and there's lots of reasons why that it became very kind of constrained on me. But I went through about two and a half years before I left that job of just this mulling over and going, gosh, this is what I've worked for. What in the heck? And I thought, you know, maybe it was me, and I did everything that everybody else does when they're going through those kind of professional crises. And I finally realized that it was the constraint that was holding me back. I had hit my ceiling. I I moved through. I developed the program within about a year, year and a half. It got where it was supposed to go, that it hadn't been in years prior to me being there. And for me, I felt like, gosh, if this is all there is, then I need to keep growing. That was a huge aha moment for me because I think a lot of the professionals I've worked with who have come to me as therapy clients or workshop uh, participants or, you know, done consulting, one of the things is that when you feel like you've hit your ceiling and you can't grow anymore, it, it almost stifles you. So for me, I actively, every two to three years, I look for something I can kind of change or stir up to keep me fresh and keep me growing. Otherwise, I do feel like I get stale. So to me, boy, that was a huge wake-up call for me um, (laughs) that really helped me set the stage for everything I do for anybody else at this point on. And that's where the evolution piece comes in so importantly for me. 
oh, I think that a lot of people are sitting on the edge of their seat right now because they find themselves in that situation. They find themselves having worked hard to get to a position and are now saying, oh, my gosh, is this all there is? Yeah. So as you look back to what you did to restructure that for yourself or to prepare to leave, what are two or three of the most important things you did in order to help make that transition or even to develop the, uh, the vision possible and then practical so that you could, you could affect it? You know, first of all, I think I assessed my skills because as I was exploring leaving, you know, you think about we, we have a tendency to limit what we think we can do because we have fear. We're afraid to step out. We're afraid to take risk. But I think the number one thing that I did was I, I assessed skills. So what was I good at? Um, to me, it was speaking, it was writing, and it was seeing clients. But, gosh, if you think about how you can do that, you can do those three things in lots of different ways. So, number one, I would assess the skills. Number two, I would also say, what do you love the most? Because when I left that position, one of the first things I promised to myself was that I was never going to do anything again that wasn't fun. And what I mean by that is you have to find what fun is for you. For me, fun is talking with people. To me, fun is developing things. It's, again, it's that evolution piece for me. It's, it's creating something that I can give to someone else and let them run with it. So when I promised myself I'm never going to do anything that's not fun again, it actually set a really nice standard for myself because then when I started getting that that inkling from um, different situations after I left the medical center, it was my wake-up call to go, okay, I need to reassess this and maybe either do something differently or or even get into a whole new situation. I think, number one, assess skills. Number two, figure out what's fun for you. Number three, figure out what will always provide the opportunity for you to grow and evolve because I do think most workers get stale if they are stuck in a situation where they don't feel like they can move any further. And, um, you know, I know that when I was at the medical center, one of the things that I observed is that I felt like there were a lot of people that kind of sold their souls just to stay there. And what I mean by that is they kind of stopped growing. You know, they went through the motions. They just kind of were waiting for retirement, even if it was 10, 15 years away. And it was one of those things where I just feel like their energy was kind of stifled and stale at that point. But that's also what burns us out. You know, the research is very clear on burnout, that we don't burn out on the things we love. We burn out on the things and the situations where we feel like we don't have enough to give. And I know that sounds strange, but it's it's one of those things where we feed our souls the best with the things that are the most interesting and fun to us. And as you were preparing to make the step to go from where you were the director of behavioral science at Wake Forest University, what is it that you did to prepare to help mitigate the risk of that and move into a, a career that would be successful as well as support you? You know, the number one thing I think that works for everybody, everybody under the sun, is relationship building. So I reached out to other professionals in the community. I had a ton of people within the medical center whom I still keep in contact with um, because I taught physicians and medical students and nursing students and other uh, medical-based students. I, I had a fairly large um, arena of people that I had relationships with in the community, and I still get referrals from them. That was 14 years ago that I left, and so I still get referrals. So I think relationship building is huge, and, and I want to say relationship building versus networking. 
Because I think networking has a different tone to it. Networking is more of, you know, what can you give to me, Um, you know, and and whereas relationship building is a much more kind of give and take. It's a much more mutually giving and receiving kind of situation. Well, how does the conversation start where you're reaching out to build a relationship? Mm -hmm. And how does that, how do you form those questions or those beginning thoughts in your mind in order to frame that conversation that way, whether you're meeting with someone or calling them? And maybe contrast it a little bit with networking. Yeah, so one of the first things I did when I was still at the medical school, I was looking into the community to see who else was in the community that was doing what I was doing. So in other words, who else was a clinical health psychologist or or a clinical psychologist in private practice? And I just called people. I called people and said, hey, I work in the medical center. Um, I'd love to know a little bit more about you. I'd love to know more about how your private practice is working. I'd love to know how I can help you. So it's it's really a a give and take really from the get-go. And you're not going to get bites from everybody, and I didn't. But I had probably a core of a good ten people that responded, and we all, you know, eventually ended up having coffee or lunch or whatever, and I'm still really good friends with several of them. And um, so I think a big part of it is, you know, if you just call to say, hey, I'd like to know more about what you do, I'd like to be able to, you know, refer people to you or vice versa and see what we could offer each other, people are surprisingly willing to just have a human conversation. If they feel like you're trying to get something from them, they're probably not going to go for it just because of the fact that they're busy too and they feel like their their resources are already being too tapped out. But if you really offer them and say, hey, you know, I've got, you know, um, I don't know, I've got this book that I think could really help your clients or, you know, I'd really love to know how your assessment business is going. I've got several, you know, colleagues who do uh, assessments for different reasons. And, you know, I'd love to know what your particular favorite client is to work with so that I could know how to send people to you. So so it's really about offering them something, but also, you know, it's like any new friendship or colleague or anybody else that you start to have relation with is that you just learn about them and they learn about you and then you get a sense for whether or not it is a match, whether or not it's someone that you actually really want to you know, kind of relate to. Because you're going to have some that are going to be wonderful and some that, yeah, okay, that didn't work out. <laughs> it's just how it goes. <laughs> and I hope that everyone listening to this heard how Catherine described, what can I offer you? How is this going for you? I may have colleagues I can refer to you. How are you doing in this area? I know of a couple books that really made an impact for me. It's that sense of generosity and uh, resourcefulness that helps people want to connect with you and see that you're looking to have, as you so aptly put it, a human conversation as you're on your quest for the best. Right. Absolutely. Catherine, here are a few questions that I love asking everyone to get your particular take. What are the key components of your routine for daily success? Uh, you know, number one, I know it sounds so basic, I exercise often because for me, exercise keeps me grounded and is the best place for me to get clarity. So for me, that is one of those things where I try to teach that to every professional that I meet is get some sort of physical activity on a very regular basis because it just from a biological perspective, it keeps people grounded, but from a mental and emotional perspective, it keeps people grounded. And what's I your do- favorite way to get exercise? I'm a walker. There's something about whether I walk my dogs or whether I walk on a treadmill or just go walk on a trail. I can lose myself in my walking, and it clears me. It absolutely clears me. 
And so I, in fact, tonight, even though it's going to be very warm when I get out of work, <laughs> hot and humid, I'm going to go out and walk the pups. Um, I've got two dogs. And it's my way of clearing, and there's nothing better to realign me. But that is the one thing, and I know a lot of people say, oh, I don't have time, or, you know, and, and, and it's, it's really it, it's about making an investment in yourself. So that's one of them. The other thing I do is I read a lot. I try to read things that are out there that are new in the research, new in whether it's communication and leadership, whether it is about health, whether it is about spirituality, whatever it might be. I try to see what's new out there because it keeps me fresh. And then again, I think relationship building is probably in the top three. I think just seeing connected with personal you know, folks in my life, but also professionals, I think that is very important for us as humans. You know, te- technically we're pack animals. We're supposed to be interacting. So all of those things are very good for me to keep myself fresh as a human being and a professional. And what's a tool or system you use for staying on track and productive? I use my gut reaction. <laughs> Just like what we talked about before, I, I probably... I don't know how many times a day if there's some decision or there's something that I need guidance with, if there's some priority I need to set, I always go to that gut reaction. And I call it soul-based living, but it simplifies everything. You know, when you go to your gut reaction, it is so much simpler than trying to problem-solve something. And so that is probably the number one tool that I would encourage everybody to start using is just go to your gut because that never leads you wrong. What's a book that you've given as a gift in the last year? Okay, it's called Sacred Finance. Um, It's an interesting book about how to, oh gosh, how to overcome your roadblocks to making more money or how to overcome kind of that that fear mindset that most of us have in terms of changing our professional lives in a way to... um, you know, kind of really embrace money and be accepting of money because I think a lot of people are afraid of money, believe it or not, especially women. So that is a book that I have encouraged and I have also given to folks. And what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? You know, my mother used to always say, this too shall pass. Really what that means to me, and I, I reinterpret that, is, again, don't react. Take some time to acknowledge what it is you're supposed to be learning from a situation because it always works out in the end. Well, Catherine Kelly, you have shared so many great pieces of advice and insightful wisdom with us today on My Quest for the Best. I want to thank you so much for sharing with us about how Yoda was an inspiration to you, (laughs) making distinctions between responding and reacting, helping people become less afraid of this source of wisdom by being able to call it a gut reaction or checking your gut as well as checking your soul, as well as the tip to look down when you close your eyes in order to access some of those, those messages and insights, encouraging people to look into, especially women leaders, to repartner and renegotiate some of these aspects of their lives that haven't, aren't ideal and, and could be improved, and encouraging us all to not just seek to heal things, which gets it back into a restorative position, but to evolve, so knowing that we could go beyond where the limits were before. I just want to thank you so much for joining me on my quest for the best. Thank you. I've been, I've been very excited to be here, and I appreciate your willingness to have this great conversation. How can we find out more about you online? Yeah, so my website is www.drkatherintkelly.com, and you can also just type in thesoulhealthmodel.com, and, and that will take you to that website as well. But, uh, again, it's www.drkatherintkelly.com. There's a T in the middle because there's another Catherine Kelly who's a orthodontist up in Minnesota. So unless you want to talk about teeth, uh, you might want to put that T in there.
And do you have anything you'd like people to be thinking about in terms of soul health as we conclude this interview? You know, the number one thing is, again, listening to your gut to see what is going to align your life for your own radiant living. And what I mean by that is that once you listen to that gut, it takes you down the path just like a GPS system, and it takes you where you're supposed to go so you can be at your best. Hi, this is Bill. Before you go, I just want to ask you a quick favor. If you've enjoyed this interview on My Quest for the Best, I'd love it if you'd go to iTunes, look up My Quest for the Best, and subscribe. I want to make sure you don't miss the very next episode we have coming up. We've got a lineup of terrific guests, and I know that if you enjoyed this one, you'll like what you find coming up soon. Also, feel free to give it a comment, a like, because we work hard to put these interviews together, and I appreciate making sure that we're reaching you and serving you in the, the best way possible. I look forward to reading your comments and catch you on the next interview. Thanks so much.